Uh, I'm going to speak about the reading from Acts 8, 1 to 8, and 26 to 40. And I want to ask, what are the basic elements in every Christian conversion? That's the question. What are the basic elements in every Christian conversion? Here's a definition of conversion. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call, in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. Have you done that? That's the question. Are you converted? Have you, as the definition says, have you made a willing response to the gospel call? And have you sincerely repented of sin and have you placed your trust in Christ for salvation? If you haven't, now is the time. Now is the acceptable time. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, pleading the merit of his shed blood. And like the jailer of old, say, what must I do to believe? And the answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There have been millions of conversions worldwide over the last 2,000 plus years. But in every true conversion, there are a number of basic elements. And I think in understanding these elements tonight we can be delivered from discouragement. In other words, we won't give up. You've been praying for somebody for many years. Don't give up. Keep praying. So we look at the the conversion of the Ethiopian we've just read about. And here we have a very important man. A man of great authority. He was in charge of the treasury in Ethiopia. And historians tell us that Ethiopia stretched from Aswan to Khartoum. So it is a large large territory. And this man was the equivalent of our Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he's a dissatisfied man. He looks around at the gods and idols of his country and he's dissatisfied. Are you dissatisfied? And amazingly, he becomes interested in the God who was worshipped in Jerusalem. The invisible God. And amazingly, he was interested enough to leave Ethiopia and travel hundreds of miles on a hazardous journey. What made him dissatisfied and want to know more about God? And some commentators say that he he was probably a black African, uh, probably a Jew, or by birth or conversion, because the Jewish dispersion 
had reached Egypt by this time and probably beyond. So we meet him on his way back from Jerusalem. And he has a copy of the scriptures before him. And, and he's traveling as far as the Gaza Strip. And he's reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And by the way, those people in those days read aloud. Do you read aloud? I do. My people think I'm crazy sometimes. But, but I read aloud at home. And I suggest you do it. It helps to read aloud. For me, it helps, certainly. So he's in, he's traveling as far as the Gaza Strip, and he's reading Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. And he's reading aloud. Here are the verses. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And he's passionately interested in the things of God. He's reading and asking questions. Would to God that there were people in Wales like this today. He's passionately interested. And he's reading. And he's asking deep and searching questions. Now, all of what I said is beyond human capability. You realise that, don't you? But, but with this man, it's different. Why? Because God has awakened his interest. And it's such an interest and a desire that he's willing to make a long and hazardous journey. God is calling him to ask questions about the meaning of the Bible. Has he done that with you? And of all things, he's directing his attention to the profound and wonderful teaching of Isaiah 53. I've got four points. Point number one is this. In all conversions, God is at work in our lives. And God prepares us. And I don't know if you realize it, but God is at work in our lives long before we realize it. You look back on your own life now. And he is the author of spiritual interest. And that should reassure us in gospel work. Out there in the world, God is at work in people's lives. And in different people's lives, and people who had no interest in the things of God five years ago, three years ago, two years ago. But today, but they do today. They have interest in the things of God. And let me assure you that God has his people out there in Cardiff. Why are you here 
in the church in Cardiff. Because you to worship God, obviously. But because God has his people out there. And a godly old man, a friend of mine, said when I became pastor of a church, David, why are you here? And he said, let me tell you. Because God has his elect people out there. Now you go and find them. Lovely advice, isn't it? God has his people out there. You go and find them. And that's your responsibility. That's why you are here. To worship God and to proclaim the gospel to this area in which you find yourself. So every Christian, every conversion takes place because God has prepared a person. I don't know if you know this theological term. It is used by the Puritans. It's a wonderful term. It's called prevenient grace. That is, it means to come before or anticipate. Another way we could talk about it is preparing grace. So what I'm saying is that God is at work in our lives before we know it. And he prepares us. And um, you look back on your own life. Why were you born where you were? Why did you have these parents? Why do you live in Cardiff? Why did you do this job? Everything under the sovereignty of God was working to bring you to salvation. You don't see it at the time, but that's what it is. Let me give you some examples. And let me just stress this, that um, (coughs) God's grace knew us from eternity. And it determined our salvation. And our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as I said this morning. And that grace had maintained a watchful care over us long before our conversions, in fact. Now, you think back on your own life. And that happened from the moment of our birth. And as I said, the Puritans had a word for this. They called it prevenient grace, to come before or proceed. And prevenient grace refers to God's preparation in our lives when he prepared the way before our conversion. And um, one man has called it preparing grace. And we know, don't we, sometimes he got in our way. We wanted to go one way and he stopped us before we became Christians. And he stopped us to ensure that we stayed on the path that he had chosen for us. Even though at this time we didn't know this. So what I'm saying is our birth, our family, our education, our friends, even our decisions, they were all in the hands of the one who had chosen us for salvation. Let me give you some examples. Saul of Tarsus. Now he was a well-educated Jew. 
from one of the best universities of his day. One man has said that he was, at this time, he was the equivalent of two PhD. He had the equivalent of two PhDs behind his name. And um, he was highly regarded, and he had good connections. On top of that, he was a Roman citizen. And on top of that, he possessed a sharp mind, and he had a strong will, and his life was firmly disciplined. He'd studied under Gamaliel, hadn't he? One of the chief rabbis of the day. Um, and this was all true long before he became a Christian. But see what it meant? When he was converted, Paul had easy access into the synagogues. He was a well-respected Jew. Um, a rabbi taught by Gamaliel, been educated in one of the best universities at that time. And so he had access into the synagogues throughout the Roman Empire. And you know when he started preaching the gospel, he was allowed entrance into the synagogues. You see his background? See God working in this? Is it? People, people knew him as a, as a highly respected um, Rabbi. And that formed the basis of his strategy when he became a Christian evangelist. And what I've said was all part of God's prevenient grace. And he'd chosen Paul to be his instrument to carry his name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's one example. Think of John Newton. John Newton had his mind stored by his godly mother with verses and hymns from the collection of Isaac Watts. By the way, teach your children Bible verses. You, can do it. you can't do anything better. And even if they don't understand them, Teach them verses because by God's spirit he can use those verses in the future. Who knows? So he was well versed in Bible verses and hymns from the collection of Isaac Watts. And this was later used by God in his experience of conversion. Those verses came flooding back to his memory. And on top of that, John possessed a very retentive mind. Look at this, he learned to read at the age of four. And he began Latin at six. This is before he was a Christian, obviously. And, and he enjoyed a gift of putting thought into verse. And he was a natural leader. You see, all this was preparing him for his later service. For God. Now you look back on your own lives. It's not difficult, is it, when you think about it, to see the plan of God in your family connections and upbringing. And the natural abilities that you have. And the interests that you have. Perhaps before you became a Christian, you enjoyed reading. You enjoyed studying. Or just arguing with people. You may have been open to religion, 
or, or impressionable. Or you were naturally sceptical, even cynical. And many roads closed or opened. And at that time, they were frustrating. But they were forwarding God's plans for you. At the time, we could see no purpose. But much later, we could see everything work towards our conversion and subsequent Christian service. So whatever your background, whatever your personality or interests, can you now see if you're a Christian how it is all being used by God to prepare the way for your future. And um, as I say, with Saul of Tarsus, though we do, know, we do not know his presence at the... Uh, we do know about the presence of his death at Stephen, and that made an impact upon him, didn't it? See? And on his conscience. You see? God's prevenient grace. Why was he there? Why did he witness Stephen's sermon? God's prevenient grace. Um, and that clearly made an impact on his conscience. Has something like that happened to you? Think back now. Some event, some person. God uses those things to, to stir your conscience, to give you an interest in him in particular. We know more about John Newton, and we know as a boy, he narrowly avoided death on several occasions. And as a godless sailor, he was more than once remarkably preserved. He never recognized the hand of God in those circumstances. He, he, he never thought of God. But looking back, we could see it. He recognized the hand of God in these lucky escapes from death. They weren't lucky, were they? In God's providence. That's why I sang that hymn. The great providence of heaven, what wonders shine, you see? And let me just stress this. Perhaps the greatest evidence of prevenient grace in Newton's life was an amazing series of coincidences. And those coincidences finally brought him back from the coast of Africa. He was a slave trader. He was trading for slaves in New Guinea on the coast of West Africa. And he and a friend were preparing for a mission to go inland. Before he set out, a ship passed. Um, it passed the point where Newton and a colleague were working. And being in, in, in need of some items, they sent up a signal for a trade. It was unusual for ships to pass this part of the coast at this time of the year. And the captain at first decided that since his ship was already past the convenient point for returning, he would simply ignore the signal. However, on a whim, he hove to 
and received Newton's trading partner on board. This is from his autobiography. Almost the captain's first question was to inquire whether the young man knew of a John Newton anywhere on this coast. He'd received orders from Newton's father that he would, that if he was ever located, Newton was to be brought back and he would pay the expenses for bringing Newton back to England. Uh, John had been had not heard of had not been heard of in England for more than eighteen months. And the same happens to all those who are chosen for faith in Christ. Though we are mostly unaware of these unseen footprints, and they don't always seem to be dramatic, but you see, Newton getting on that boat meant that he was converted. Remember there was a storm off the coast of Mid-Atlantic or further north, off the coast of Ireland, I believe, and it was at that time he was converted. Now, do you see how God, in his prevenient grace, worked all that out? Some people refer to the term irresistible call of God. John Newton preferred the word invincible. Just one other example. So, I've spoken about Saul, I've spoken about John Newton. Now, let me just mention um, Bunyan, John Bunyan. In Grace Abounding, Bunyan traces the invincible grace of God's call in his own life. He tells when he was in the town of Bedford, think of this now, and overheard a group of women sitting at their doorway and talking about religion. That's a thought, isn't it? They were sitting on their doorway and talking about religion. And his conscience was already troubling him. And he deliberately listened into their conversation. And their talk both intrigued him and troubled him. Because they, they seemed to have found a new world that he was a complete stranger to. And their experience of God and salvation was well beyond anything he himself could understand. He slipped away and went on with his business. But he commented, their talk and conversation followed me. He could not get out of his mind the things they, they had been saying and the assurance and joy that they had. Bunyan's conscience was troubling him. And see what happened? He listened to these women speaking on their doorstep. Irresistible grace, invincible grace was at work in his life. And of course, if you know Bunyan's life, his path to salvation was a long and hard one. He went through agony and torment of conscience. But finally he found peace with God. Now what about you? Do you see that God in his prevenient grace, in his preparing grace, 
has brought you to a point where he's going to convert you. Why are you here tonight? That's no coincidence, is it? It's in God's sovereign plan, despite the heat. <laughs> um, it's in God's sovereign plan that you are here. And who knows that you being here, this prevenient grace can be used to bring you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I was a, a chaplain in Cardiff in a prison and I was speaking to a, to a pastor who was there in prison and uh, he said to me, I, uh, I'm not a Christian. And I heard him preach. I heard him pray. He was magnificent. He could move a meeting. He was now in prison. He said, I'm not a Christian anymore. I said, listen, if you are a child of God, the hound of heaven will be after you. And he won't let you go. He'll get you. And he'll do it through terrible things that will happen to you. He may do it through wonderful things that will happen to you. But if you're a Christian, the hound of heaven will be after you. And he won't let you go. If you're a child of God, you will be voluntarily and yet irresistibly drawn to confess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He since told me he's a Buddhist. So those are examples of prevenient grace. And... Um, can you apply it to your own life? I'm sure you can. In a testimony, you could do that, couldn't you? If you came up and told me your testimony, you now see that these things, why was I here? Why did I hear that? Why this? Why that? That's the first point. The second point is this. A Christian met him. 17 miles north, there was a Christian, Philip. And he's a godly man. And he's a great preacher. And as he preaches in Samaria, many are converted. And he's used by God to do a great work among the Samaritans. Remember the Great Commission? Um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I've seen that Samaritan experience. It's a halfway house between uh, Jews and Gentiles. Do you see Samaritans? Kind of, they had a strange religion, didn't they? The Jews hated and they wouldn't go through Samaria, would they? But, but that was the commission, wasn't it? And Philip is fulfilling that commission. And these Samaritans are converted. There's a revival in Samaria. And he receives a message from God, actually, 26. And now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now that's desert. And the gospel was moving out from Jerusalem. By the way, we don't go to Jerusalem for pilgrimage, do we? I've never been to Israel. I'd like to go to 
Galilee, they see the lake and all that. But I don't go as a pilgrim. The gospel has moved out from, his, from Jerusalem. The center of the gospel is wherever we are. Wherever God's people is. I won't go down that track much further. Verse 27. So he arose and went. Think of that. He's in the middle of, of, of revival. God says, go down the desert. <laughs> Questions? Surely, Lord, I've been blessed here. Thousands have been converted. Hundreds have been converted. You tell me to go down to the desert. He doesn't do that. He goes. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. I think this is funny. The chariot probably was going over desert ground, going slowly. And here's this guy reading Isaiah 53, and here comes this man running alongside him. And he's reading aloud. And, uh, and Philip asks him, doesn't he? He runs alongside and sees the man reading the Bible, and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah and asks him, do you understand what you are reading? My point is this, rarely is anyone converted without meeting a Christian. It's possible. But generally speaking, rarely is anyone converted without meeting a Christian. We believe God is in sovereign control, don't we? He's the sovereign ruler of the universe. He runs the world all the time. Those we meet are according to God's plan. And pray that some that we meet might be prepared by God so that we should meet them and speak to them. Next week now. This week. Who knows? That someone we meet by God's providence might have been prepared by God to listen to the good news of the gospel. Pray that that happens to you next week now and to me. What an encouragement for evangelism. Point three. Obviously, the Saviour was presented from the scriptures. He's reading and he's perplexed. And I, I, I read Isaiah 53, those verses. And um, the Ethiopian says, who's he talking about? Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning at this scripture, preached Christ to him. So Philip, with an open Bible, talks about God, sin, Christ, and faith. And that's what Isaiah 53 is all about. Then we have time to, to expound Isaiah 53. But let me put it, put, it, put it like this. The two verses that he read would be enough. But my favorite verses in Isaiah are these. He was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace is upon him, and with his stripes are we healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So he starts from Isaiah, and he probably told him that. So think now, the gospel was preached to him. He was wounded for our transgressions. Wounded. We were transgressors. Bruised. He was bruised. For our iniquities, we transgressors, we are 
we have iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. See? And with his stripes we are healed. You see what he's talking about? Christ, our substitute. He who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world, transposing it to the New Testament, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the verse I use if somebody asks me, tell me about the gospel, is this. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again according to the scriptures. And that needs to be interpreted, like Isaiah needed to be interpreted to this Ethiopian. Listen, Christ died for our sins. Who's Christ? Who was it who died? Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Who was he? He was Christ. He died. Why did he die? For our sins. It was according to the scriptures. He was buried. Fact. Fact. He rose again according to the scriptures. Have you heard the gospel so many times in this church? I wonder if tonight, perhaps, God has prepared your heart in a way that you, your conscience has been moved and you, you see that you're a sinner before God, this holy God. And having seen that you're a sinner, you, you turn in belief, you repent and you turn in believing faith and claim the, the promise of, of peace with God, forgiveness of sins and eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage in Isaiah is a miraculous portion of scripture, isn't it? If you haven't read it all before, go and read it now when you go home. Isaiah 52, 12 to the end of Isaiah 53. And think of this now, here's the Ethiopian and he's been given an advanced look at the life, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Written hundreds of years before. This chapter is packed with prophetic details about the passion of the, of the Messiah. <laughs> it speaks about the Messiah. And it's mentioned many times in the New Testament. I won't go. I'll just leave it at that for the moment. And the images are so Calvary vivid then it's amazing to realize it was written hundreds of years before his birth. And it doesn't just give us details of Christ's history in advance. It explains the purpose of it. I just said it. He was wounded for our transgressions. Why? He was wounded for our transgressions and so on, right? And, um, and so the great emphasis on this passage, and this is what Philip would have spoken to the Ethiopian, is redemptive. 
Why was he born? Why did he come from the root and stem of David? Why did he grow up an ordinary looking man? Why did he suffer rejection, arrest, scourging, and crucifixion? Isaiah answers it for us. He was wounded for our, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities and the chastisement of our peace upon him. And with his stripes are we healed. And this verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. You have a new, and I have. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned to all of us to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What an exchange. What a blessing. What a salvation. The final point, point four, very quickly. The Holy Spirit worked in him. Nobody can believe that Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. I can prepare as thoroughly as is possible. I can pray for many hours, and I should do that. But having said all that, it's the Spirit of God alone that can save a person. Spurgeon said, thousand times thousand preachers cannot save a single soul. And it's so true. But praise God, in his sovereignty, he uses feeble messengers to bring the glorious gospel of Christ to men and women and boys and girls. But the fourth point is this, the Holy Spirit worked in him. And you know, somewhere in the Bible study, he was able to say, I believe, doesn't tell us. I wonder when. And somewhere, when you hear the gospel, clicked. I heard the gospel with a man preaching from Psalm 40. I waited for the Lord my God and patiently did bear. At length to me he did incline my voice and cry to you. He drew me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, establishing my ways. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see it, and put their trust in the Lord. That psalm was instrumental, partly in my conversion. As was the Old Testament verse, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. So somewhere in the Bible, he was able to say, I believe. Now, can you say that? Can you say, I believe? I believe that I'm a sinner. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in this world and lived a perfect life and died on Calvary's tree and is ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high there to intercede for men and women and boys and girls like us. And one day he's, he's coming back. Now, do you believe? <coughs> so, in every conversion, God prepares us. A Christian meets us. A saviour is presented to you. And the Spirit works in you. And it's amazing. The Trinity is involved in this man's conversion. And in every conversion. Isn't that amazing? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
is involved in this man's conversion. And a man was involved simply as a co-worker. God works through instruments. He works through his servant, through the scriptures to bring conversion to pass. So God, in his sovereignty, prepared Philip. Has he prepared you? He prepared the Ethiopian. Has he prepared you? He prepared the way for them to meet. He's done that, hasn't he? You hear tonight? God, in his sovereignty, used Philip, his servant, and the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit opened his heart to receive the gospel. What a wonderful God our God is. What a wonderful saviour we have. God grant us to be men and women whom God can use as soul witnesses. This man listened, he trusted, and he obeyed. What about you? God give us the grant, the grace, so to do. Amen. We sing our closing hymn of praise. Glory be to Jesus. And uh, who in? I can't remember the second line. Glory be to Jesus. The one who, uh, who in bitter pains poured for me the lifeblood from his sacred veins. Can you say that? Glory be to Jesus. Please stand to sing the hymn.
And now we pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.